Outside In is committed to journalistic rigor and transparency. To learn about the reporting process for this series, please visit windfallpodcast.org. Imagine a wind turbine. The big ones that you've likely seen before. If you've never stood right beneath one, this is what it sounds like. They can be noisier when the weather is just right, or wrong, as it were. But having stood right beneath several, I can tell you that generally speaking, it's actually a little uncanny how quiet they are. The big ones often look like they're moving slowly, but the tip of each blade can be traveling faster than 150 miles an hour. Something so big, whispering along, quieter than the traffic on a country road. And they are big. It's almost a little unsettling how big they are. The biggest in the world today are the size of New York City skyscrapers, specifically almost exactly the size of the Trump World Tower. Each blade is about the length of one and a half Boeing 747s, slicing through the air impossibly fast. Is it any wonder that these machines have become the symbol of the fight against climate change? I remember back in college being handed a poster for some climate rally. It was just a bunch of silhouettes arranged like that iconic photograph of the soldiers who hoisted up the flag over Iwo Jima. But instead of the flag, they were pushing up a wind turbine. We're going to talk about how they got to be so big, literally and symbolically. And to do that, there's perhaps no better place to start than with Henrik Stiesdahl. Yeah, is it better or worse? It is better. It is better. Yeah. And then that's what we do. Okay. The turbines with the three blades up at the top. In the business, that's called the Danish concept. And one of the very first such machines was built by Henrik Stiesdahl. The reason this design has taken over the world is because it's the design that works. It's the one that produces the most energy for the least money. Turbines that look like egg beaters or double helixes or jet engines, they didn't make the cut. Many people call him the father of wind energy, but I get the sense that he'd be embarrassed by that moniker. Uh, I started making wind turbines all the way back in 1976. Henrik built his first turbines from junk. Stuff that was just lying around his family's farm. And they were small. All three blades together were about 30 feet across. So it's about 45 years ago now. And um, ended up building a a wind turbine for my parents' farm that could deliver the power that they used. And I got kind of hooked. Hooked on this concept of doing something new. and ended up doing, together with a friend, a couple of commercial machines. At the time, they were still pretty small, though they generated a little more electricity than your average household would probably need. He sold his design to a company that made cranes. That company was experimenting with wind turbines, but it wasn't going great. So in walks Henrik with his farm junk turbine, and the Danish concept was born. That company? Its name is Vestis. Henrik did all of this before even starting college. And they're actually still the largest wind company in the world. Uh, And they they started uh, with a license of my technology back in 1979. 
Henrik Stiesdahl has been at the leading edge of this industry since its birth, from blades that looked like tiny airplane wings to blades bigger than airplanes themselves. And the major difference between the wind turbines we see today and the ones that Henrik built in his teenage years is they just keep getting bigger, bigger than even Henrik could imagine. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about um, how big <laughs> how big you think they might wind up being. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that I've been predicting where that ceiling is for 35 years and always been wrong. Uh, in 1985, I went uh, to an international conference as a speaker uh, and stated very firmly that uh, commercial turbines would never be bigger than 250 kilowatts. 250 kilowatts. GE just announced a model that's 14 megawatts. What is that? Almost 60 times bigger. And it wasn't the only time that he was very publicly wrong. Five years later, he was off again, still way too low. So what I'm doing now is that I'm looking at the growth curve. If the curve continues, it will cross the 2030 line at a size of about 20 megawatts, 275 meter large rotors. That's a big machine. Uh, And how it goes after that, nobody knows. A 275-meter rotor. The rotor is everything that spins, the blades tip to tip. And 275 meters is the length of three football fields. If that prediction is true, it would mean that 10 years from now, from tip to tip, it would be the size of a giant spinning sports complex. It gets to a point where wind turbines are so big, you can't even transport the parts for them on land. Highways aren't built for them. The turns are too tight. And actually, that's kind of convenient. Because the best winds, the ones that will generate the most energy, those winds are out at sea. Climate change is so big, so complicated, that there's no one solution. There are a ton of solutions. If we want to avoid the worst impacts of a warming Earth, there are so many things humans need to change, all at the same time. Some of the technologies that people discuss as solutions might not happen at all. Others might not happen fast enough. But there is one thing that is almost certainly going to change here in the United States, and it's going to change fast. We're at a real moment. All of the stars have aligned. The politics, the technology, the money, it's coming. Now to a dire warning about climate change. According the to Biden the administration wants offshore wind in U.S. waters. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. No reason. It's devastating, but on the up hand, it's money in my pocket and job security for, for myself and my people. You want to save the planet? You want to go green? Stop using so much electricity. The only thing I see about going green is money. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Windfall, a special series from Outside In. I'm Annie Ropeek. I lead NHPR's climate reporting project by degrees. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. This is the story of the birth of a new industry. And who has the power to reshape the future of where our energy comes from? Thank you.
In the spring of this year, a landmark attention-grabbing report came out, the kind of report that double underlines the thing that this podcast is all about. It came from the International Energy Agency. The IEA represents dozens of countries, mostly rich ones, focused on energy security. Historically, the IEA has been criticized for repeatedly overestimating the cost of renewable energy in its forecasts. But this time, even the kind of stodgy, kind of conservative IEA came out with some really startling conclusions. I will be blunt. Commitments alone are not enough. We need real change in the real world. Here's the IEA's director, Fatih Birol, in April of 2021. They said that to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, the world needs to stop looking for new fossil fuel supplies this year and dramatically ramp down their use. Emissions are on track for their second largest increase in the history. We are not recovering from COVID in a sustainable way. And we remain on a path of dangerous levels of global warming. But at the same time, the IEA also said that despite the pandemic, renewable energy is being built faster than ever. So at a minimum, it seems some of the world is trying to pivot. And the one place that countries are looking to more and more, a source that many in the industry thought would never be cost competitive, is offshore wind. Now the world is changing. Now we are doing what we thought we couldn't do. There's this old picture of Henrik Stiesdahl that I found back when he was much younger. This was in the late 70s, and he and his dad are standing over an early rotor lying in the grass, and Henrik has this curly mass of blonde hair on his head and is looking very 70s and unconcerned. I got a little bit of that vibe when we talked over our video call, too. He was in his office and at one point put his feet up on the desk, revealing that he was wearing shorts that were of a very, shall we say, very European cut. After kickstarting the modern wind industry with his invention, Henrik Stiesel went on to have a long career in that industry. And along the way, he worked on basically every milestone in the development of the technology. That includes having developed the world's first offshore wind farm. I, I, I'm about as biased as you can get. I built the first project in the world. Which one was that? What was it, what was it called? That was, that was called Vind, Vindeby. Vindeby. Yes, Vindeby. In, in Danish, we would say Vindeby. But I've learned to say it so that it can be, you can read it later on and say, oh, that was what that guy was saying. The first offshore wind farm in the world was built off the coast of Denmark in 1991. It was a demonstration project 30 years ago. It's so long ago that Vinnebu has actually already been torn down. But now the turbines are being taken down. After more than 25 years of operation, which is much longer than anyone dared hope for, with water depths between 2 and 5 meters... Vinnebu was project number one. And it's really hard to wrap your head around how much has changed over the last 30 years. The bigness of offshore wind. Not just how big the turbines are now, but also how many there are in the oceans and how quickly the world is installing them. So to help you picture it all, let's say that all of the power put out by Vinibu is just one marble. And actually it took nine years until we built number two. That was built outside Copenhagen and has 22 megawatt turbines. That's eight Vinnebus. And it's, I think, the mo- still the most photographed offshore project of them all. 
and they just kept getting bigger. The Nystedt project with 72 2.3 megawatt turbines. Uh, That's more than 33 Vinnebus. And then there's this big project called London Array. That one was finished in 2013 in UK waters. That's 127 Vinnebus. Henrik retired after the London Array. It was the largest offshore wind farm in the world until 2018. Today, the largest project in the world, Horn C1, another British project, is nearly 246 Vinnebus. If you, if you draw kind of like a curve of the first 25 years of offshore wind, then that curve is very strongly sort of flat in the beginning and rising very steeply in the end. And where it really starts rising is in around 2010. That's where it really takes speed. So it was indeed the inflection point. So the wind farms themselves are being built bigger and bigger. But if you really want to talk about bigness, you have to take in the whole picture, not just the size of each turbine or the size of each wind farm. Just last year, China installed the equivalent of 606 Vinnebus. South Korea has plans to install a single project that would be another 1,657 Vinnebus. It's just massive. If you looked across the globe at the end of 2020, there were thousands of turbines in the oceans. 35 gigawatts. That's more than 7,000 Vinnebus. But that's the rest of the world. Here in the U.S. is a different story. You know how much offshore wind the U.S. has installed? Let me just put it this way. So we're... You have an opportunity today to go out to the first offshore wind farm in the United States. Um, There's a number of wind farms, uh, primarily in Europe, that have been in the water for well over 20 years. But this is the first in uh, the United States. The The United States has seven turbines in the ocean. Seven. Europe, more than 5,000. America, seven. Two of them are in Virginia. And five of those seven are deep water wind off Block Island in Rhode Island. And Brian Wilson is their manager. All right, so we're headed off to Block Island. Uh, The wind farm is located three miles off the shores of Block Island in state waters. It is, again, a state project. Um, Takes us about an hour to get there. Block Island Wind was the very first offshore wind farm to be built in the U.S. five years ago. But it's just a demonstration project, kind of like a modern Vinnebu, just... 30 years later. The turbines are quite a sight to see. Um, Everyone who arrives for the first time is pretty much awestruck. Um, It's quite a sight to behold. There are reasons why the U.S. is so far behind. Reasons 
we'll save for another episode. But for now, I'll just say it's got less to do with how windy the Atlantic Ocean is, because it is very windy out there, and more to do with political winds and how they shift. Anyway, the Europeans and the Chinese got a huge head start. But there are benefits to coming second. Or, you know, fourth. The expensive days of developing a nascent technology are now past. The European wind industry is mature. In Europe, offshore wind is competing against other forms of power without subsidies and is eager to get a foothold in the United States. And certain states are eager to give it a foothold. As part of their climate change plans, seven states on the East Coast have passed laws mandating that their utility companies buy energy from offshore wind projects. Offshore wind projects that no American company has built yet. So that's opened the door for the European offshore wind giants to set up shop on this side of the pond. With the laws in these seven states, in less than 10 years, the U.S. could have more than 30 gigawatts of offshore wind installed. More than China has now, more than Europe has now. More than 6,000 vinaboos. And those wind giants are bringing their money. That's after a break. So states are lining up to buy the electricity. European companies are eager to build the turbines. But the oceans, where the wind is blowing and where the turbines are going to be built, those are federal waters. Okay, so today is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. They're auctioning off three federal... uh, We've told you about how big the wind turbines have gotten and how big the wind industry has gotten. But there's one more superlative ingredient needed before you can watch an industry be born. Big money. It's at this auction that we see big industry spend big money to buy the right to develop America's big oceans. The Outside In team watched this happen in real time on the internet. The voices you'll hear are executive producer Erica Janik and producer Justin Paradise and Hannah McCarthy, co-host of our marvelous sister podcast, Civics 101. They were looking at a map of the lease areas south of Nantucket, Massachusetts. So here's the map. Um, These ones have been sold already. And these three are the ones that they're selling. So we got sort of like east, middle, west. Which one is the windiest? Oh, I think they're all pretty windy. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) It's an auction, but instead of an auctioneer barking out numbers, selling off paintings or antiques or busted old cars, this is the federal government auctioning the right to develop the ocean. For the people who watch this kind of thing, they had no idea what to expect. Sam called an analyst in Massachusetts, a guy named Bob Grace, who said his office was running a pool, betting on how much money the auction would raise. Price is right rules, everybody guess, and I've got uh, guesses for the max bid for anywhere from $6 million to $600 million. <laughs> million. <laughs> there just wasn't much to compare this auction to. I mean, the U.S. had only done this a couple of times before. The first time a tiny holding company swooped in and bought an offshore lease for peanuts, less than what a three-bedroom home would cost in much of the U.S. Um, it went for 150000 bucks, and that was in 2015. Oh, that's nothing, yeah, that's right? Yeah. really cheap. For a huge swath of the ocean? But then, just a few years later, there was another auction for another lease, and it went for way more. This is in 2017. <gasps> what? what? 
left. Whoa. So this That's was more like it. Forty-two million dollars. Uh, Someone got swindled. Yeah. <laughs> Someone got windled. <laughs> so in the auction they're watching, there was this question: How serious is the offshore wind industry? Is there real money on the table? Were they ready to throw down tens of millions again, or just a few hundred thousand? The auction started at 9 a.m. There were 11 bidders vying for three leases. There was a column for each of the three leases and a row for the current top bid for each round. It was a silent auction. Every so often they'd hit refresh, a new row would pop up. (laughs) (laughs) Two, two, and two. You know your win, (laughs) your win slots. It was slow, but by six hours in, around 3 p.m., the bids had climbed. Each lease was higher than the highest bid from the previous auction. So we have passed the 42 million point. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. At this point, companies were dropping out left and right. Still, a few stayed in, vying for those three leases. The numbers just kept climbing. But but yeah, I mean, it does feel like we must be closing in on the end. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because we've just got four companies and they're kind of like. But we just had a $17 million jump. Are we <laughs> really crazy. closing in on the end? We are in the hundreds of millions here. The auction went on for two days, 32 rounds. The three lease areas sold for over $400 million in total. How much would companies be willing to spend to enter the American offshore wind market? A lot. And here's the thing. Look at the companies that bought those leases. Most of the 11 bidders were renewable energy companies, but most of the winners, they look a lot more like oil companies. One lease was bought by a partnership that includes Shell. Another went to Equinor Wind, which used to be called Statoil, the Norwegian national oil company. There's a lot of money moving into renewable energy, moving to try to combat climate change. And the companies with the most money muscling into this space are some of the very companies that got us into this mess to begin with. So that's where things stand. The technology has matured. States have said they'll buy the energy. European companies are tripping over themselves to come to America. The ocean has been carved up and auctioned off for development. And now capitalists, with lots of money, are falling over each other to get a piece. Like it or not, all of the pieces are in place for the birth of an all-new American industry. But let's just ask ourselves for a minute, how did we get to this point? How did the United States get so far behind Europe and China? Why is an offshore wind already here? This is not a decision about money. It's not even a decision about power. It is a decision about our environment. What if the engine dies when you're upwind of one of those? Or what if the sail breaks? What is it? What can we offer so that the tribe will stop fighting us on getting this project done? Um, and I said, there is no price. That's next week on Windfall. This episode of Windfall was written by me, Sam Evans-Brown, mixed by Taylor Quimby, fact-checked by Sarah Sneath, and produced by Jack Rodolico. It was edited by Erica Janik, Annie Ropeek, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, and Hannah McCarthy. 
Graphics for Windfall were created by Sarah Plord. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Special thanks to Sarah Mises Tan and WCAI for the audio of the Block Island Wind Farm Tour, and to Vincent Schellings, Walter Musial, Michael Taylor, and Dan Shreve. Music for this series came from Ben Cosgrove, Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Zabriskie, and Breakmaster Cylinder. Windfall and Outside In are productions of New Hampshire Public Radio, which is supported by you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, make a donation to support us. There's a link in the show notes or at our website, windfallpodcast.org. Do I have back my marbles? You don't have your marbles back yet, no. When will I get them back?